Father, when we think about a universe and uh, the specs that we are in it and how long time is and how small we are, many have been daunted into thinking that we are there for nothing. And, and despite our smallness, you love us. And uh, despite our shortness, show such infinite love towards and attention and care and um, we are so grateful that you love us and we're so grateful that you notice and you ponder uh, how to bring life and how to bring love and how to bring the well-being that you promised to us and we are thankful that you would become one of us short and small but on a cross to save the world, to, to change the course of the universe of time. Thank you for making us the temple. Thank you for making us a people. Thank you, uh, even on a, on a small scale, for making us Brookside, that we would be together and love one another. Father, I ask that that would indeed be our character, that we would love, love, love one another with a sight on, uh, on to how eternal our souls really are. Thank you. Amen. Grab a seat. And kids... You guys can find your way to those doors over there, and your teachers will get you to Kids Church. Um, whew. So, when we have to, like, make temporary residence in a, in a room like this, we kind of have to orient ourselves as we go along. But for example, if... Uh, we always like to set up a place for moms to go if they need a, a moment of privacy with their kids. And so we have that over there if you need it. That's where it is today. It's usually over in that corner, but it would have been awkward for everyone to have to walk in and out through it. So, um, Amy, anything else you'd like me to announce like before? We could do announcements at the end, but anything? All right. Well, we are ready to go. Well, welcome. Um, it's been a fun week in the Risky House because it was the playoffs in Little League Baseball. Nine, ten-year-olds, it is, there's nothing like it because when the season starts, the pitchers can't throw a strike to save their lives. And if anyone puts it in play, the ball is guaranteed to be thrown around 78 times. And uh, a, ground, a cheap ground ball to shortstop might end up being a home run by the time everyone's finished throwing it around. It's like one of those things. But by the end of the year, with that age specifically, it looks like baseball. And... Uh, being from Cleveland and, and, and being for the fact that our teams didn't just get close and lose a lot, it, up until somewhere into my childhood, the, our teams were all just terrible, and especially the Cleveland Indians. And so a guy from Cleveland, the guy who wrote the movie The Sting with Robert Redford from the 70s, you've ever seen that, being from Cleveland, he wanted there to be something where Cleveland won. And so he wrote the movie Major League, if you've ever seen it. The end of Major League, they're down a run, and uh, <laughs> I think it was tied actually, but he, he, he points the outfit like he's going to go Babe Ruth on it, and everyone's like getting all mad in the outfit, and then he bunts, and then the guy scores. It's awesome, right? Well, the reason this is important, yeah, bring up the lights, it's fine. The reason this is important is because in the championship game, we had been down four to one and scratched out a couple runs and it's in the bottom of the fifth. It's just six innings in Little League and it's in the bottom of the fifth and we're, uh, Jack's in the middle of the order and much past him, we're starting to get to the kids who uh, are maybe newer to the game and we're really starting to wonder, are the, are, is the run going to come? And the kid before him laces a, a, a double into the outfield and there he's on second. And Jack, you know, that little scrawny little Jack, you know, and he sticks his butt out when he, when he bats too, which I love. But uh, anyway... <laughs> Pitch winds up, swoosh, turns and bunts, right? 
perfect bunt. Dribbles maybe 10 feet, and, and you've maybe seen him running around. You probably realize no one's going to throw that kid out at first, right? But the catcher tries. Over the first baseman's head, everyone's running around. Run scores, just like the movie Major League. That's what's super important. And, uh, and then on the next hit, Jack scores uh, what ends up being the, uh, the go-ahead run. They win the game. Champions, we got a trophy. The trophy won't be put away for quite a while. Woo! But, uh, which I'm just sharing my joy with you. But here's where it comes down, though. Because you see, as he's growing in the love of baseball, things like me listening to the Indians game is suddenly not just white noise, but he's listening. And Jack loves to play second, so he's on second base, and he, and he says, who plays second for the Indians? Uh, a guy named Kipnis. What's his first name? Is he good? Jason Kipnis is pretty good. He's all right. All right. The more he goes, the more Jack is going to start to look at these sorts of people and say, do I want to be like that? How do I play like that? Those questions become more and more important. Anything you ever want to pursue... You can either just sort of do it the way you do it, but if someone does it with excellence, if somebody does it really well, and you look and say, that's how I want to be. And uh, so I want you to imagine Jay, uh, Jack decides that because Jason Kipnis plays second baseman for the Cleveland Indians, and, and owing to the fact that I'm his father, he's forbidden to root for teams not from Cleveland. Uh, it's, it's not true. Just as long as you don't root for the Yankees, you're fine. But... Uh, <laughs> Seriously, that'd be like, go sleep in the garage time. I see you. I see you over there, John Grossman. It's, it's, it's character deficiency. We have to talk about it later. But uh, it's not. So if he wants to become like them, it's not going to do to copy his batting stance and wear his jersey, is it? That's not how you become like that person. Maybe Jack could grow that little short beard like Kipnis wears. Uh, if he's... Not, it's a joke, he's 10. Come on, beard, 10. All right. So anyway, the point is, the only way he's ever going to become like him is by practicing like him, right? Okay, well, we're in this series on First Peter, and, and, and as we begin to like follow out this book, so far, Peter has not told us how to become what it is that he would have us be. Only he's described what it is that he longs the church to be, what it is that he sees the church could be. And he's been describing us, and he used this phrase, a royal priesthood, uh, in his words, a, a holy nation. But remember the word holy means set apart, a nation, a people, that we would be uh, a people. And so with that in mind, I wanted us to draw up what Peter had been thinking. And because he was Jewish, and, and, and most of the people he's writing to are Jewish, he knew that in their mind they had this. This is sort of a cutaway view of their temple. And as Christians, and especially as New Testament Christians, we tend to look back at that as sort of the, just the old and, and what was that about. But sometimes it can really help if you could sort of go to this side of the timeline before there was such a thing. And if you wanted to go find God, how did you find God? Where did you find God? And the, and the Israelite people and then, you know, the Jewish people, they really believed before Jesus and, and truly believed that if they wanted to know God, this is where they went. This is, this is the place in that, that room that's sort of in the back is the Holy of Holies and it had the Ark of the Covenant. If you went in there, your face melted off. Not really, but it was in the movie. I was good. And someone confessed to me this week that they had never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I just felt this deep sadness for them. So if you haven't seen it, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nothing in it is true. But the actual Ark of the Covenant they made for it is very, very like what's described. And so you get that out of it. And it's Indiana Jones. But 
this, pic, this picture that they had, that you could go find God in a place. And because of that, and because they didn't see what was coming with the, with the age of the Holy Spirit, they really believed that the way God was going to be given to the whole world is if they could get them all here. Well, I'm used to the thing being behind me. Here, okay? That's their goal. And so when Jesus gives the Holy Spirit and the, and the first Christians realize that the building was really a picture of what was really to come and that you, you're the temple, you're the priest, you and I, we are the ones who God has made his appeal to the world for. We are where God dwells through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's the picture he had. And, and so moving on in the slide, he, Peter had told us earlier on that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we talked a lot about that when we went through 1 Peter 2. A people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. They have all these ornate pictures from the Old Testament to show them what it could be. But you and I, we are a far more glorious temple than Solomon's temple could ever dream to be. Well, summing up where we've been so far, because we're starting to close out the book, we'll cover chapter four today, or at least most of it, and then chapter five next week. But Peter said, you know, he's been saying that we're God's people, a temple, a place of his dwelling, representing him to the world by, and the way we, it's super important the way, because most of my Christian life, I assumed that what that meant was we, we would be more moral. And we would make sure certain sins weren't in our life, because if those sins were in our life, then people would look and go, oh, that's a bad picture. And I, I, I joke about it just because it's, uh, it's funny and, and it's easy. But I really do remember having the thought that I saw somebody smoking and, and I had the, the literal line of thought in my head as maybe like a, a young teen or a late, right around Jack's age. I thought that person was a Christian, but then I saw them smoking, right? Somehow smoking was going to destroy a person's ability to see the temple of God. <laughs> but it's not just, I mean, and honestly, as, as we sin and as we break the world and as we practice anger and malice and, and, and gossiping and all the things that we might do, that, that it does keep people from seeing the temple. But even if we just simply, simply limited ourselves to not sinning, they'd still miss it. You would just seem like a decent person. It's our ability to deal with the broken world and, and to suffer its evil and return good that makes the world go, what's that? And we looked at that last week when we looked at chapter 3. And so, we, uh, summing up Peter so far, we join Christ in his suffering in the midst of every governing power. Well, go back, right? Go back, because I was reading it. Uh, <laughs> in the midst of every governing power. In the midst of, because uh, he talked about that, the government, at work. And then, of course, at home. That's one of the most difficult places. Because I can gear myself up to be a super great guy at work as best I can, and I can gear myself up to deal with our government as best I can. But at home, that's the place where I really begin to show what I believe the good life is. And if I believe it's kicking back on a couch and, and making my kids, uh, like, you know, like in the old movies with the fan, the big fans like this. Who needs AC when you got a kid who's got like a big palm, like a big palm frond or something in the movies? Anyway, uh, if I really believe it's about me, then I've showed my hand what I'm really about. And so if, the, if this Christian way doesn't work at home, then it doesn't work. And so he talked about it at home, especially in our marriages. And then, um, and so moving that back into the, into the passage here, he's like, that's our goal, that we would be these things. So now let's jump up to, on the end of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So on and on, as Peter's gone, he hasn't just said, hey, I want you to be these people who lay down your life and let Christ pick it up. Every time he talks about it, he says, because Jesus did it first, because Jesus showed us how to do it. Remember, Jesus did it. And Jesus' suffering's not just on the cross. It was every bit of his life at one point or another involved laying himself down. If you could have seen him as a teenager, you'd have seen a kid who knew how to lay down his life and give life to others. But even as we follow his life through, you know, in in his 30s and his ministry, we see his friends misunderstanding him. How do you and I usually handle it when we feel profoundly misunderstood? If if you're anything like me, I want to grab you and be like, no, you have to understand me. Jesus returned love instead. And his enemies, they called him sometimes Beelzebub. Beelzebub is from the Old Testament god Baal, Baal. But it's two titles put together, Baal of Zebul, Lord of the house. And uh, because Beelzebul, which means Lord of the house, and Beelzebub, which means Lord of the flies, are so close together, they, they, they changed the name to Lord of the flies as sort of a way of mocking the name. It's also where the book title came from. Um, they're saying Jesus is really Satan. Now, could you imagine being him, knowing that you're supposed to be Messiah and living without a home, knowing that you're supposed to be king of the universe, and people always go, who's this guy? Knowing that your eternal enemy is, the, is, is Satan, who has looked to destroy everything, and people are calling you him. When you get your identity impugned like that, how do you handle it? And Peter says, let's look at him. And then, of course, all the way to a false trial. And being beaten mercilessly and crucified all the way to death, Jesus was willing to suffer for us. And it's super important because he didn't just die for nothing. Years ago, I was, I was giving a, a talk. It was, it was one of those things where it was a panel and they had a, a, a sort of a more conservative Christian, I don't want to use that word, a, a Christian who believes what Christianity is traditionally believed. We'll use that. That would be me in this case. And a guy who was more progressive and, and, and how to set up. And somebody in the course of the question and answer said, why do you think there was, uh, it was actually Brian Wiles from H2O, if I remember correctly. I love that guy. This is kind of their snops, by the way. So if you see some H2O people, give them a hug and say thanks for the space for the week. But uh, I think they're meeting over there today later. But Brian goes, well, what do you think the cross was for then? And the guy says... I think the cross is a beautiful picture of how much somebody can believe something. And he said it very heartfelt. But I remember thinking at the time, and I didn't say it because it seemed like it had been out of line. Like those people who flew those airplanes into those buildings. Is that really it? That we would call evil good because of how much belief is behind it? That can't be it. Really can't be it. No, Jesus is on the cross with an eye to redeeming you and I. He understands why he's suffering. And that's what Peter's trying to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus who understands why he's suffering. I don't just lay down my life to just show that I'm tougher than whatever I was before. I do it because I'm looking to bring redemption to my world. So we're copying Jesus. So he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And if we're going to do this, we have to pick up this loaded Christian term, the flesh. And so in order to do this, because Peter is writing to you as though you already know what this is all about, I'm borrowing from Paul's words in Ephesians 2. And if you remember the cello series, love the cello series. I loved it. I'm sure you did too. All right. Anyway. 
When, Pete, when Paul talked about this, he said, once you were dead in your trespasses and alive in Christ, he used these terms. And so I'm going to borrow from the slides from that, uh, from that series, but we'll begin with just this. You are a soul. So there's your soul floating in nothingness. Ready? One, two, three, soul. Is up? There it is. <laughs> Sometimes these don't line up with those. Kills me. But uh, <laughs> here's the deal with being a soul. In this room are, you know, Dozens and dozens and dozens of souls. And there's likely a soul seated uh, about 20 inches one side of you or the other. But if you were just a soul and didn't have the flesh, your soul would have no way to connect with that soul or to heaven, so to speak. And I'm simplifying this a little to help you understand. But even if you could imagine... uh, you ha- you're in an office where there's a lot of messaging done back and forth, but I go ahead and kill the modem in the office. Your computer, and that computer might be 10 feet apart, but without the, the internet, the, the, the way to connect, there's nothing, right? That's the problem with just being a soul. And so here's your soul in the world. It can't connect. Just sort of floating about in, over the world. But here's what God did. In order to give your soul a way to enact its will in the world, God gave you your flesh. It's your being. It's your ability not only to, to, to bring destruction or hurt or whatever in the world, because often flesh comes off kind of bad in the Bible. We'll talk about why. But it's also your ability to give a hug, to give love. I have these thoughts in my head, but I'm actually using my vocal cords and my body to produce the words, and then they arrive to you, and then your flesh catches those words and then turns them back into something your soul can use. This is what it is to be a flesh. But you're not only that, the Bible says you have your spirit. So think of your spirit as the part of you that's able to enact, if so there's the physical realm your flesh is able to connect with and enact your will into. In the same way, and, we, and in the next slide I put God here, it's your ability to connect with God, but it's really the ability to connect to any of the spiritual realm. This is why we speak of the enemy lying to you and all those things, because God is not the only spiritual being able to speak into yours. So here's sort of a functioning picture of what it is to be human. My spiritual being able to connect with God, my flesh able to connect out with the world. And if you could have met Adam and his created being, or if you could have hung out with Jesus, what you would have seen is a being whose life flow, whose well-being, whose sense of how life really works and goodness comes from God, flows right through his spirit. And that's why Jesus prayed. He spent a lot of time with his father out through his flesh, out to his world. The problem with Adam's version of it is Adam and his wife Eve decided to eat the fruit. And then according to Paul, this is where he said, once you were dead in your trespasses, this concept that the Bible calls death happened to us. Although my flesh can still accurately contact the world, my spirit does not accurately draw life from God anymore. At least when we're dead in our trespasses and sin. This death is so profound that what ended up happening is we still need life. We no longer know how to get it from God. So what we do is we begin to get it from our world. We begin to believe that food is more than just the ability to make sustenance for our body. It's the beginning, it's the ability to make well-being. It's why we struggle to eat right. Because if food did nothing but just bring sustenance to our body, I promise we would all eat like champs. But a pint of Ben and Jerry's does not draw on your body's need for sustenance, does it? It draws on your soul's need. And it's so good. All right, so you see how that worked? 
We begin to draw, to use our flesh to be our well-being. And this isn't always terrible. And how do I say this right? Quite often we think that there's a line. Here's the list of things that are sins. And if it's not on the sin list, it's fine. And so we begin to say, well, I know that, you know, uh, you know, clubbing baby seals is bad. I'll put it on the SID list and that's over there. And, as lo- and then we start to say, and this is the telltale sign. As long as I'm not, you ever use that phrase? As long as I'm not, and then we'll fill in the blank, is okay. But something in our heart says, what if it's not? It's not on the sin list, so to speak. You know, food, you need it to survive. But all of us know that something about food can pass into gluttony. And and if we try to use the sin list, yes, well, you know, 2,000 calories is sustenance and 2,001 calories, you're now a sinner, you gluttony. How do we do this, right? How do I know when I've become gluttonous? It's not a matter of the sin list. It's, It's heart condition, isn't it? I've begun to use my heart to think I can make these things life while they won't work. And the Bible's very, very clear that the more we do that, the more we not only can't get life from it, but what comes out of us is sometimes some well-being, but also death or sin begins to pour out of us. Here's the easiest way to think about this. You ever had a day where work ate you alive and you came home and your soul was on, and whatever your life meter is, is on empty, empty, empty? And your kid comes up to you and does the same annoying thing as yesterday. Only yesterday you had life in your soul. And you were like, (laughs) and today, because your soul's on empty, there's no life in it. What comes out of you is something you're really not proud of. Ever had that feeling? You know what I'm talking about? Of course, with your friends or with whatever, when our soul feels death, we deal death. And then the Bible says we've been made alive with Christ. This is this slide. Jesus erased the death between us and God. The, the curtain of the temple being torn open is the physical representation of us actually having access to God. We can know him. We can love him. We can experience him. We can pray. We can do the things that bring life into our soul. But Peter says that when we have not suffered in the flesh... When we have not denied our flesh, when we have not learned to let it be unhappy, we will always, so see in this picture, we're not getting life from God. God is open to us as Christians, but we are stuck, still trying to get life from our flesh, still believing it'll work, despite the fact that it leads to the same broken places we've been. So he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. We've got to think like Jesus. We cannot afford to live our lives according to the flesh, according to whatever your desire matrix tells you will be well-being because it will fool you and it will destroy you. Paul, when he talks about it, he says, those who live by the flesh, and he makes that crazy list with things like drunkenness and orgies and sensuality, and he puts like witchcraft on it. Uh, But he also puts things like factions and dissensions All these little self-serving ways because once we've tried to get our life from our flesh, we will always end up living like that. So Peter, going on, already thinking that you think this way because he's taught this church before. He goes on to say, for the time is past. We've had generations of trying this in culture after culture. Before the Romans were the, were the Persians and before the Persians were the, or before the Romans were the Greeks, before the Greeks were the Persians and before the Persians were the Babylonians. People have been trying this. The Egyptians, it doesn't matter who. We've all been trying this way and the time's passed for actually allowing ourselves to believe it'll work. Oh, but we still do. 
We still try money. We still try fame. We still try power. We still try control. We still try sexual immorality. We are still trying all this stuff. And he says, come on, it's past now. This way of living in sensuality, this is when I think that my, uh, my passions, and he uses passion here in a moment, but my, especially my sexuality, it can provide me the life that I've been longing for. And whether you're married or not, this problem exists. There's nothing, we, 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 as Christians, because remember the sin list? If you're married, it's okay. And if you're not married, it's, really? You don't, none of you husbands and wives are ever sinned against each other in this arena? Thinking that serving your, your, your own feelings and your own passions instead of like laying your lives down to love one another? Really? Because I know I've hurt my wife before. You see, when we live this way, when uh, passions, drunkenness, we are not ever going to be the people who make laws to try to keep ourselves away from sin. And I grew up with it. Where I grew up with alcohol was just the bad. It was the devil. And, and in, the, uh, in the early 1900s, there was a famous baseball player who had been a total drunk and he became a Christian. His name was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday quits baseball and becomes this very successful preacher. And he preached against the evils of alcohol so much so that they riled up everybody that we made a constitutional amendment that we would get rid of alcohol. It's going to be great. And actually, when the amendment passed, I believe it was Billy Sunday preached this sermon. You can still read the text if you look hard enough for it online where he talked about this age of righteousness that was going to come because we finally got rid of the evils of alcohol and and goodness and wellness was going to pour across the land. Or uh, institutional crime and Al Capone and the kinds of evils that we still have not been able to get rid of because we thought that we could fix the outside and fix the heart. It doesn't work that way. We will not be people who make sinless to keep you away from it. However, I'm not a fool. How's alcohol working in your life? Have you allowed it to move into the role where it's your life? Where you start to use it to actually get the wellness that could only ever come from God. And instead of it being a free gift from him, where we enjoy it in his presence and his love, it becomes the replacement for him. How about orgies or whatever, sexual drinking parties, lawless idolatry, all the ways that we begin to say to God, you don't have the satisfaction I'm looking for. So I will use food, I will use alcohol, I will use pleasure, I will use, we are Americans, we're people of means, I will use travel, I will use pleasure, I will use trips to the spot, I will use whatever it takes to get what it is I need because God, I don't think you can provide. And he's like, let's not try it because it's never worked for anybody Not us, not the Romans, not the Greeks, not the Persians, not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Egyptians, not the Sumerians. That's as far as I know how to go back in culture. So, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They look and say, what? How can you not get life from this? Surely this is the life. They malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this, uh, and he goes on and says, for this the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. This doesn't mean that uh, someone went to the dead and preached to them there. This says that, because remember he's thinking in their Jewish world and they're thinking, yeah, well, what about Moses and David and Elijah, these people who came before Jesus? And he's like, this way, this understanding was even given to them and he's, he's already helped us, helped us understand why through the prophets. So that, um, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. And he, he's making reference to how the Old Testament people that you've learned about are able to access God as well. And then he says to you, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be controlled. 
Understand where your life is from. Just like a person who decides that they don't want to be overweight, and we use this a lot, who has to make decisions about their diet, but the problem is, whatever dietary decisions you make, very soon your flesh is going to go, but I want it. There was donuts at Life Group the other day, and I've made a decision that, that I really want, and I had to not eat donuts. You understand, my flesh was saying something to me, right? And how much more so the way we've used anger and control, the way we've used unforgiveness and bitterness, how much more so the way we've used chemical love, like alcohol or something like that, how much more so the way we've used sexual immorality, all these things are killing us. They're like, if your soul has like, you know, like little doors that open up for life to pour in, and all of them are clogged by your flesh, do you understand you will not see or experience God? He will be right there, but the doorways to your soul are clogged up, if you will. Has he been feeling distant lately? Has God really been feeling like no matter what you do, he just seems like not there. And, and, and this is the real tell, tell sign. Do you feel like your soul kind of says, and I don't even really care. You're clogged up with life, the, with the things that you told you would give life, but the problem is they aren't going to work and they're going to increasingly yield sin and brokenness coming out from you. Above all, keep loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And he, he, he keeps going on and he says, as each has received a gift. So notice this gift-giving idea that Paul has often talked about and we've talked about it a lot in church. He actually sees it as in order for you to use your gift, if you've been clogging up the holes of your heart with your flesh, even your gifts are going to begin to suffer. But he says, but as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. You know, Paul gives us tons of gifts like, you know, teaching and preaching and shepherding. Peter told you, Peter's not as sophisticated as Paul. I like his list. Ready? The one who speaks, let him speak as, as though he trusts God is speaking through him as oracles of God. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. Speakers, servers, good enough. Whatever your gift list is, right? But, uh, <laughs> As one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which means so be it. Let it be done. Well, let's go back to this first verse because I think this is the crucial moment in the whole passage. I think everything that poured out from it is what we would expect. But in my experience, I want to think uh, of, of being a Christian, first of all, as we start with outcomes. We want to be the kind of people who aren't plagued by sin. We want to be the kind of people who are filled with joy. We want to be the kind of people who can deal with the brokenness that the world supplies to us all the time and return good. We talk about those all outcomes all the time. But we can start to do things like where I point to you and go, so just, you know, go suffer, man. Or, you know, you just, just go, go do it. Like the old, the old Nike campaign, just do it. But I think when we're honest, no matter how hard we try, our life doesn't change. And the reason is because hiding behind the desire for the outcomes, just like when we talked about the baseball player at the beginning, besides the, you know, wanting to brag on my son for just a second, is that sense that if he's going to fix his eyes on somebody, it's not dressing like that person. It's not attempting to conform his actions, you know, copy his batting stance or whatever. It's does he practice like that player? And if we want to be like the Jesus who Peter keeps telling us to emulate, then we must practice like him. 
We're going to have to figure out how Jesus arranged his life so that when the time came to be rejected by people, to be misunderstood by people, to be beaten by people, to go through a false trial, to be mislabeled, to be crucified, all these things. In order to have the kind of soul that could do that, we need to know how he lived. And so if we've been living this version, no, no, go ahead, that's the one, all right? Yeah, this version. Man, they're all misarranged down here. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, if we're going to do that, we have to recognize that we'll never be it. As long as we're trying to use comfort and, and, and personal pleasure and sexual immorality, as long as we're trying to use power and control and to manipulate our world, as long as we are stuck believing that money and affluence, that these are the ways we're going to get life, as long as we are indulging in that, our soul cannot then magically become the sort that acts like Jesus because he lived the one where he got life from God. Remember when Satan said, Ah, oh, Jesus, you're starving. You know what? Just go make your own bread. All those things we do, all those, those symbolic ways that we make our own bread, that we make our own life, we make our own pleasure, we make our own satisfaction, we make our own way to well-being to self, all of those preclude us from getting the life from God. And that's why Jesus said the famous line, man cannot live by bread alone. Instead, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the life that Jesus has. We practice so to end this, I've got a list of, uh, of a number of practices. And, and I want to start, by the way, with what was handed to most of us. Most of us coming from the Protestant realm, we got the version where, you know, go to church and have daily devotions. And by the way, if those were your practices, they will probably help you. I, they're not, they're certainly not bankrupt. But I think that we can look at a century of that being the sort of the way, you know, just have your daily devotions and, and go to church and it's supposed to magically happen. I think we probably have to recognize that it hasn't brought about the spectacular change of a whole church looking like Jesus. I think there's more. So I want to give you the, a, a much broader list. The kind of lists that the wise men who, who teach us of these things say, have you considered this? And, and, and even some of the wise to help you think through how could this practice work? In other words, if I wanted to get better at hitting, one of the things I could do is I could, you know, take batting practice, right? But there's other things hitters do to work on hand-eye coordination. To, and, and in the same way, what sort of practices could a Christian put in their life and why? What, what sort of ways can they help your soul? And I will tell you, we always begin with fasting. Fasting has existed, by the way, not just in Christianity, but even in the Jewish religion before, and actually in most religions, because of its intense power to help us to learn to lay something down, to practice picking something else up. Okay? And there's a lot of ways to fast. You know, quite often we'll lay down a day or, uh, or sometimes multiple days. And uh, sometimes people will actually fast from a thing. They'll take, uh, you know, meat out of their life or, or boy, that's, that is some sad living right there, right? <laughs> Think about it. You get all the sustenance your body's going to get, but the, boy, a meal without meat is, it is, it's just sad. And I begin to believe that meat is actually the life that I was looking for. And what fasting does, for example, is it begins to say to my, to my bratty flesh, hey, look, you do not always have to get your way. We're going to be okay. And it makes room Especially when you're fasting meals, to, it makes room to help your soul say, well, but I still have desire. 
When food doesn't come in, I feel depleted, I feel sad, I feel deathy, and I, and I have to reach for something, and it, and it gives me room to begin. See, I unclogged a hole that food had been, and I begin to say, Lord, can you? And I begin to stretch my heart up to him, and, and if the first time you try it, if you've ever fasted, it's awkward because we're not good at it. Just like anybody practicing something for the first time. But when you talk to people who fast relatively routinely, they will tell you they begin to look forward to those times with God. They don't look forward to the hunger. No one looks forward to hunger. But they do look forward to, as they practice moving food out of that spot and letting God in. Um, a next one is study. So this is similar devotions, but actually really beginning to attempt to understand what God has been telling us through his word. We go slow with it. Some of you just finished Bible in a year with me, which is like the super fast version. We did the whole Bible in a year. Studies the opposite. Studies were like, I'm going to take a book like, say, First Peter, and I'm going to read it until I understand it, until I can really get the broad message of what this thing's saying. Study. Uh, next one on my list, solitude and silence. I think if I were to say any one of these today, based on our American culture, I'd say this one. Because we are profoundly good at filling our worlds with noise. When that music seats, our iPod comes on. When our iPod ceases, we, there's always noise. And we're also very good at and keeping people around. You are made for community. You are made to be loved by one another. But what can happen when we're not careful is I can go from enjoying you as a gift of God and, and you'll know this is the spot where you really, really, I strongly recommend solitude is when you've started to say, how dare you not love me well enough? I thought these were people who were supposed to love me and they're not giving me the life they were supposed to. This is when we're beginning to abuse one another. Have you ever had that feeling? I thought they were supposed to love me. They're the Christians and the Christians. I'm came in. And, but really what's going on is you have begun to use, instead of enjoy one another as a gift of God, using one another as the life that was supposed to come from God and your soul's reporting it to you as dissatisfaction. What solitude does, set a morning apart, set a day apart, and if you combine it with silence, you're going to find out that there is an abundance of noise in your soul that you haven't been paying attention to. That you get to fill with a chance to hear God and to hear his word, all right? Prayer. This one might seem obvious, but really, I think one of the reasons we're bad at prayer is because we surround ourselves with so much noise, all right? Generosity and giving. If your money has been owning you, what generosity and giving begins to say is, I, I, I'm really thankful for the provision the Lord has given to me, but you know what's super fun to do with it? Is to provide for others and to give. When I start to believe, if you've been worrying about your bank account, and if you've been looking at it going, God, where's it going to come from? I don't know if I'm going to be able to live, and how's it going to work? And, and even though you've provided enough for the next five years, what about the five years after that? I don't know where it's going to come. If your heart starts to race like that, the antidote to it's generosity, giving. Acts of service. We can go on. Um, uh, this one's, again, obvious. Instead of serving you, serving others. Confession. Mm. This is why confession became part, like if you think like the Roman Catholic world, the reason it became an institutional part of the church is because what I hide in the secrecy of my heart and don't tell you every time it grows. Plants grow in the light, sin grows in the dark. That's how it works. Okay. What confession does, and this isn't like going to some secret booth and, and maybe talking to a person, but it really is trusting the people who love you with what you're struggling with and, and where you fail so that, the, that you guys can grow together and build together confession. And of course, worship, which I think we should do now. Band, guys, guys come up. 
We've been talking for weeks about what the Christian life can look like. About how it can truly be a giving away your life to find the life of Christ. But when we refuse to practice, when we say, Lord, I'm just going to do what feels good and I'm going to continue to serve maybe my sexual immorality or maybe my alcohol or maybe my food or maybe my, my work or my job or my money or my control or I don't know what it is with you. I want to be clear. I don't know. But I want you to hear this. As long as you serve it, you're going to miss the life from God and you're going to wonder why your life doesn't become what it is we've been looking to become. That, uh, that you, you desire for us to live in, in the way that you've uh, blessed us with community, uh, with your Holy Spirit, uh, and with opportunity to, to practice and to be, become more like you, to be, to be Jesus for the world around us. Be with us as we, as we leave and as we go from this place. Bless us, Lord, um, with the strength, wisdom, patience for ourselves and with ourselves to grow in measure. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and have a quick seat. I've got a few points of interest here for you this morning. Um, this idea of practicing was occurring to me on my, uh, as I was grabbing the microphone and, and getting ready to come up here that practicing can be hard when it's done alone. I know when I've uh, trained for running or races or whatever, it's, it's always easier when I've had a friend to join me or this morning my, my eight-year-old to hop on his bike and, and, and go a few miles with me. It, it just, it's just easier. So um, I would encourage you to grab a friend um, if, uh, who might practice any of these things with you, or even if it's just knowing that, you're try, you, that you are going to be fasting or that you're thinking about that sort of a thing. Letting someone know, I think, is helpful. Um, and, and to that end, also, as a, as a church and as a community here, we've, we, we want to know how we can pray for you, how the staff and the elders can pray for you. Um, when, you, when you walked in, I think, back there, uh, that we should have had uh, like the program for the day and a Connect card, we would love to have you fill that out. Um, let us know who, who you are, if, if, we, if we haven't connected very deeply yet, how we can pray for you as a church. Um, and if there's something that you want to practice and you'd like us to know, uh, fill that out and drop that back um, in the back, off to my right, in the giving box. Um, next, text uh, Tuesday text. If you haven't signed up uh, for our text on Tuesdays. You can text Brookside to 555-222. Make sure that you're connected um, and aware if we ever have to, somewhat on short notice, move back over here from Moles Camp. Um, next, ladies' night. I think there's a slide for this as well. 
Uh, Fireside Chat, July 23rd at the Kessler's house, at Aaron Kessler's house, 7 to 9 p.m. July 23rd. Um, this is for, for uh, women who are high school on up. Um, next, Brookside Kids, we're going to be partnering with Global Connections. It's a, a ministry for international students who are here at BGSU. Um, even today, I think, as, as part of the kids' service today, um, if your child, four, uh, ages four and five and up through fifth grade, were in, in the kids' class today, they should have received a note with some information about uh, making welcome bags for these students who are going to be joining us here at Bowling Green um, in, about, in about six or seven weeks. And then finally, uh, our second graders through fifth graders were upstairs today on the third floor. So if you're looking to pick up anyone who's second grade up through fifth grade, you can head up there and pick them up. Have a great week. God bless.